0: watching to see what you do now.
1: Beyond Northern Ireland. Law. Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland. Beyond, Northern Ireland. Beyond. beyond. North, North Ireland. Ireland. Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland.
2: Northern Ireland. Hello, welcome to Beyond NI, uh, the best political podcast in this wee part of the world. Uh, today... Uh, your host, as always, myself, James span my co-host, Matthew Spires. Very happy to be here, James. Uh, we have a brilliant special guest, professor from Queens, Colin Harvey.
1: Thank you very much. Delighted to, to be here. Very much appreciate the invitation. Look forward to the discussion. Happy days.
2: Um, I think Matt wants to ask you just a really simple question first, to, just to get the ball rolling, and then we'll move on to some of the more serious things, OK? Oh, yeah, it's okay. just a,
0: it's a nice soft softball. Just, like, what's your, what's your favourite kind of... a. Uh... Could be a movie, TV show, just has to be from this kind of part of the world, book, poem, whatever you feel like.
1: Oh, well, it depends what you mean from part of the world, but uh, at the minute, no. I, I'm watching a a French thing called Spiral. I don't know if you've ever... Oh, what's up? So that's, it's, uh, it was on BBC Four for a while. It's a sort of French uh, police crime series, you know, so it's it's very, very interesting, so yeah is there it kind go. of those like it... darker ones or is it kind of like a yeah it is fairly dark but it's it's really only uh it's one of these things i sort of found out about relatively recently you know it's been going on for years yeah and sort of uh, like a number of people you know now sort of watching things on a sort of uh <laughs> finding things to watch on
0: yeah
1: various uh... i started
0: watching i don't know if you've heard of the show bergen like it's yeah. yeah i only so, found out about that during lockdown and then i read into it and found out that it was yeah. like a big thing like for, yeah. for like a decade <laughs> i was like "What? Yeah. How? i never even knew about
1: this but that's actually that's quite a nice thing isn't it to sort of oh, yeah. discover and then you realize there's like eight or nine series and they'll keep you going for another you know
0: oh yeah Apparently, gotta be now, there's gonna be a new yeah. series of bergen as yeah. well apparently so okay we'll just <laughs> um so james do you want to head, in, head into some more serious <laughs> subject matter yeah.
2: Yes, so today's discussion is about a United Ireland, but instead of doing the typical United Ireland conversation where we have two people arguing and it just turns into a mess of, well, my culture says this and my culture says that, uh, we thought that beyond I would take a more comprehensive look at actually what it would like in terms of you know constitutionally, economically and politically and what that really means. So we're hoping for a more in-depth discussion and this is why we've got Colin, on so, Colin. I think the first question I really want to ask you is: Constitutionally, how would you see a United Ireland being formed? Do you think we're going to move into a more federal system with Dublin be the capital? Those are the sort of things we're we're wanting to find out, and what what does it really mean, and if there is a roadmap for it uh, by certain groups within society. Well,
1: it's a great great question, and uh, I really like the way you know you frame that as well in terms of the spirit of, of the conversation. Constitutionally, it's important to start really with the Good Friday Agreement framing context. It's one of the things that you know, worked very hard to stress over the last few years that having been involved in this discussion that, that there should be nothing really very strange or startling about it in the sense that, you know, the, the constitutional uh, question, if you like, is at the heart of that agreement, that agreement's been endorsed on this island, underpinned by international law. It's recognized in the domestic constitutional legal orders of both states. So I think the starting point in answering your question is the Good Friday Agreement, both textually, right? Uh, But also the values that underpin that agreement. Uh, Because in some senses, it's not a blank page conversation. Yeah, that that some of the values in that agreement are on mutual respect. Part of esteem, human rights, equality, they will frame the conversation about constitutional change in the sort of years ahead. And that's an important starting point. The second thing I want to under, underline really in response to that is that, you know, a lot of people, including myself at uh, bodies, organisations like Ireland's Future have emphasised citizens' engagement and civic dialogue as central to this work, and we've done that for a reason. I think it'd be very easy, you know, James, for us tonight to sit down and design new constitutional arrangements, but that wouldn't be right uh, to do that. I think that this needs to flow from the bottom up, if you like, through civic dialogue. Thus, for example, the proposal for an All-Island Citizens' Assembly to begin to design and shape what the arrangements look like. In terms of what that might begin the shape of all that, I think we're ultimately looking at a sort of continuum between what would look like a sort of continuity model of constitutional change. In other words, a sort of transfer of sovereignty to Dublin, but a lot of what we're used to now looking rather similar with appropriate changes in terms of the Irish constitution to a much more transformative model that would look rather more like a sort of New Ireland, new constitution with, you know, all the imagination and creativity that that opens up. So I think it ultimately, I would like to see the answers to those questions not emerging from academics like me on on podcasts like this, but actually listening to people. And I'll I'll tell you the reason for that is that I've been in rooms in the last few years where I've heard people say surprising things, right? We all know, right that everyone loves to put people in Northern Ireland the North in a particular box or they like to attach convenient labels to us all. But what struck me in the conversation in recent years, particularly post-Brexit, is hearing surprising things about what people want to see. Now, I'll give you a concrete example of that. You know People often say, well, you know unionism will need the reassurance of an assembly and executive, in any new arrangement. So that would look like, you know, a, a, either a unit or state with substantial devolution or even something that looks quasi-federal, yeah, in, in orientation. But then I've been in rooms where people have put up their hands from a, who would come from a unionist tradition saying, I say I'm not so sure I want the assembly to continue into a, a, a new constitutional arrangement on this island. So that's why I think it's a long way of answering your question. But the question deserves a, a sort of thoughtful answer. It's that I would rather the answers to those questions evolve from civic engagement and dialogue as to what people actually want. In particular, what people from uh, perceived unionist background in this society would want to see if there were a vote for change here. And I don't think we've heard enough of those voices so far in the conversations.
0: Yeah, I think it's very interesting. It's good a it's good answer. I think also you're you're very right that's like it, it needs to be a complicated answer and it needs to be kind of a, a thought through kind of answer with some flexibility because so obviously we don't have all the all the answers uh, in front of us in terms of what it may look like in the future because it's the future we
1: don't, we don't I don't suppose know one, one thing that might be helpful just to you know that the Irish constitution anticipates reunification as does the Good Friday Agreement so it's quite possible much of the architecture that's there now would flow into any new arrangements you know so and i you know i'm sure you've heard that argument you know that that actually uh, people who say that in the event of reunification the assembly and the executive would stay and so the question then is just the extent to which that new arrangement is accommodated and i think that flows out of a feeling that, obviously, particularly in the Unionist-Loyalist tradition in Northern Ireland, there's a very, very strong attachment to Northern Ireland as an identity, you know, and, and how that would be respected in any new arrangements, I think, is an important question.
2: Do you think, um, when people talk about a United you know, Ireland, do you think there's almost a, a jumping-up conclusion that it's almost as if the South would swallow the North instead of creating a whole new country as such? And do you think that offers more opportunism more opportunities for those who may be a bit more against it or not too sure on
1: it. One of the frustrations at the moment is is actually getting more people in the South to pay attention to this debate, to be candid. You know, the, okay. the Irish government seems to be running quite shy of this conversation, you know, that that even in the discussions of establishing the shared island unit, there's been a reluctance in the current Irish government to actually talk about Irish unity, you know, never mind sort of absorbing... Uh, the North in any future arrangements. I, I don't think anything is inevitable in terms of political projects. I actually don't think Irish reunification is inevitable. The history is littered with political projects that end in 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 failure. You know, um, this place has been around for you know nearly hundred years. So, <laughs> um, so the, the, we're looking at. I don't think anything is necessarily inevitable. I think there is a recognition flowing out of the agreement that you know it can't just be a conversation about the South absorbing the North. You know that it has there has to be a recognition that the values of the Good Friday Agreement, uh, in a sense, will shape that conversation, and there has to be recognition uh, in whatever new arrangements of those values. In other words, you know this is going to challenge the Irish state. Yeah this is going to challenge people in the south of Ireland to do what many of us in the north have been trying to do for, for many decades, you know, which is learn how we live together on this island and share this space. And I think you, it's a good question. I think it would be very, very challenging indeed for the Irish state to try and meet and live up to some of those values and change and you know, shape the new constitutional arrangements in ways that, that, that will do that in practical terms.
0: Do you think, then, that there does need to also... I, I assume the answer's probably going to be yes, but just to make sure... You, I assume you also think, then, that the people of the South also need to kind of be drafted into the into the conversation of how maybe that change may look uh, going forward?
1: Absolutely right. There, there needs to be an island-wide uh, discussion about what this, in fact, means. And I don't think that's helped at the moment by the Irish government and other people labelling this conversation as divisive or unhelpful or whatever. I think that's really unhelpful. I think what people like myself have been doing is, is try to say that you know, in a post-Brexit landscape, there's at least a reasonable likelihood that the referendums anticipated in the agreement will happen over the next decade. In that context, the responsible thing to do is to begin to think about sensibly managing and preparing for the referendums. <laughs> You know, whatever the eventual outcome. Uh, sometimes I, I'm sure you know, like p- people often say about people in Britain not reading the agreement. There are many people in Ireland who haven't read the agreement. You know, because this is at the centre of the constitutional issue section there. So, and again, you're right. It's it's about you know. There's often discussion about, particularly a focus on England, and sometimes in quite a patronising, condescending way, around people in England not having read the agreement. But perhaps there's a few more people on this island need to read the agreement as well because it's, you know, there at the centre of that document too.
2: Yeah. I think, uh, Colin, we're talking about constitutional change and how difficult it can be but we've, we've just come through the Brexit process and we're still going through the Brexit process which is being, I don't know if it would be as massive in terms of uh, Irish unity but we are seeing it's a long arduous task that has many bumps along the way would you sort of see similar uh bumps along the way if we were going to have full irish unity and how long would that constitutional change really take
1: it's again it's a great question i think that we have to learn the lessons from the brexit process Uh, for me the main lesson is is to do the work in advance as much as possible so that we're crystal clear or as clear as as possible to be in advance of any referendums taking place as to what that means. Uh, I think that will require both governments to engage in that process and be clear in advance about what it will mean to either vote for the status quo or to vote for change. I think the sort of work that the Scottish Government did before their first referendum is very helpful in laying out with a level of precision what that means. So essentially what you're talking about afterwards is more along the lines of implementing a pre-agreed prospectus, if you like, or a set of proposals that people knew what they were voting for in advance. It won't make the process afterwards uh, completely smooth. You know, The people who are committed to one or either outcome you know, aren't going to simply pack up and go home the day after a referendum. But I think if there's a measure of clarity in advance, it does help a process of transition after and I'm glad you know I'm glad you've used that language because you know what we're talking about on this island will be a managed transition of change if there's a vote for change that will be supported by both governments, also by the European Union and friends elsewhere as well. It's likely to be an outcome that enjoys a lot of international support. It, now it essentially means returning to the European Union. In terms of Northern Ireland as well. So I think you're right, it'll be a, a phased and managed process of change over time. The precise length of that time, you know, is an open question. Uh, one of the things that you know economists, for example, are talking about at the moment is just getting more reliable, comparable data on the island about some of the st- statistical information that we have now in order to, to work that all out properly. Um, you know, particularly the work of people like Seamus McGuinness in the SRA in Dublin, Adele Bergen, you know, and Paul Gosling actually as well, if you're thinking about this. But yeah, it'll be a managed transition over time. The exact time period remains an open question, but I actually think that's a good way of thinking about it. It won't be you know, a one-off event that happens. It'll be a process, I hope, of planning in advance so as you and I know what we're being asked and then of implementing that afterwards in a responsible way involving both governments, uh, and, and it will need to be handled very, very sensitively and carefully, underpinned by the values of the agreement that that we've talked about. But I also don't underestimate, you know, the challenges in that are significant. Uh, it will be difficult, uh, and it will need to be managed properly and well, and we need to le- learn all the lessons we can from what we've seen unfold in Brexit.
0: Do you think that a... Uh... One of the things that may help is just—I think you've almost already said it—but just that it needs to be kind of more viewed in a long-term way, maybe in some in some aspects, possibly that needs to be viewed as a a longer-term transition for some elements that might allow for better planning to go into place, possibly.
1: I suppose again, it's a great question. Even the notion of referendums of sales that that happen on a day invite that idea of a sort of moment, right? But yeah. Uh, any transition on this island, if it were to take place and if it's agreed, will be will be best seen as a sort of ongoing process yeah. of dialogue and negotiation that won't be over the day after the referendums and won't be over the year after the referendums. It'll involve responsibilities on both governments. But also, that's why I started with the agreement. That agreement architecture of thinking about relations across these islands, you know, institutional relations as well, the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference, the British-Irish Council, you know, we want good relationships across these islands going forward, mediated by these institutions, which I very much hope will continue. For example, I hope, for example, that the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference will be central to what happens prior to and after this as well, because ultimately, you know, and other people have said it, We want whatever outcome uh, is voted for, we want want it to be successful for people here. (laughs) You know, nobody wants people in Northern Ireland or the North uh, to be worse off. They want people to be better off. You know, people who argue for constitutional change on this island are making the argument because they think we'll all be better off at the far end of a managed process of transition uh, socially, politically, and economically.
2: Just building upon that point there of being better off, I think that leads relatively easy into the economics of an all-Ireland economy. What would be some of the benef- perceived benefits of it? And if there is, uh, I, I doubt the people who aren't ever ever bring up the disadvantages of it, but would there be any?
1: Again, we'll i always very conscious of my own background as, a, as a, an academic lawyer when venturing into the world of, of economics and really would point your listeners to the work of, mentioned already, Seamus McGuinness, Adele Bergen, people like Paul Gosling, Gosling, who've looked into the sort of economic dynamics. But the evidence I've seen, works such as the Hubner Report and others, point to a real economic boost as a result of reunification. Uh, There's more work to be done on that, I think. But the evidence that I've seen suggests that we will be better off in a reunified context on this island. Obviously Brexit then means that we'll also, the European Union, European Council in April 2017 is guaranteed that a vote for reunification will mean automatic return to the European Union. And I think there are all sorts of economic benefits to be in part of that broader European Union context. I think, uh, you know, the evidence that I've seen seems fairly clear to me that the division on this island has been very, very problematic for Northern Ireland economically and for parts of Northern Ireland in particular, you know, border areas in particular as well. Um, When you look at the comparisons between the performance of the north with regions in the south of Ireland, like the south and east, you know, it's just economically they're in different places. The level of it Educational attainment for here, you know, problems, you know, basic socioeconomic difficulties that have arisen, arisen as a result of the partition of this island. I think would be addressed. Also, in the context of having the sort of levers to achieve economic development on an all-island basis, I also think, you know, one of the, you mentioned failings in, in in the context of the Irish state. Ireland, a bit like the UK context, is is overly centralized. You know, whether that's in the UK context in London, or in Ireland in in the Dublin sort of uh, regional context, and I think constitutional change here would force, if you like, the Irish state to confront and address and have a better regional policy for the whole of the island, and um, and I think that would be beneficial, not just. Uh, for Northern Ireland, but for the whole northwest, the whole north of the island as well. So, you know, not an economist, but the evidence I've seen is that we'd be better off in a reunified Ireland. And also, just a final point, all the economic arguments against reunification are falling away, if you like. You know, it seems to me the growing body of evidence that we'd be simply better off in new constitutional arrangements on the island.
0: Um, and then, well, why do you think, uh, at least in terms of current polling, there's been a suggestion that there are actually people who are undecided on this kind of constitutional question? Do you have an opinion on why there's kind of uh, so many people who are undecided at the moment?
1: Well, wh- you'll know you- yourselves, like w- one of the, the real live debates at the moment is the whole question of polling. <laughs> Yeah, here, you know, and the, the different uh, methodologies and, you know, you get some really quite contrasting outcomes, you know, in the different polls, you know, quite staggeringly different in terms of where, where people are at. Um, so there's that question to be addressed. There's all, you know, it's been raised the sense that, you know, g- given the nature of our politics, just being sometimes being explicit, about your constitutional preferences uh, can be challenging for people. Like, let's be honest about that, just being very open about that. But I think probably the main reason for me is that that, that we're really on the at the start of this conversation. Yeah, you know, I think people quite rightly, particularly in a post-Brexit context, want to see what the proposals are. You know, you know, and, and I would be, this is why I started off. Uh, talking about the Irish government, you know, it seems to me uh, ridiculous that the Irish government doesn't have mu- something more concrete to say about the potential future of of, of the island. You know, so you know, un- undecided can also be a matter of wanting to hear what the propositions are, wanting to see the prospectus. You know, wanting to see that document a bit like the Scottish government proposes. That well, what you say that. That this will mean that people will be better off. All well, let's let's see some more detail on that. So I think, also again, I know I keep mentioning Brexit, but Brexit is a game changer for many people. I think here they're simply looking to, you know, the old ideological arguments are sort of falling away. And people think, where will I, where am I better hitching my wagon to? You know, where will I be better off? Where will my children be better off being brought up in? And increasingly. You know, the South looks like a better bet, particularly people look at, you know, Boris, the Brexiteers, where that may all end. And they're nervous. Uh, they look South and they see, you know, a socially liberal, uh, progressive, and relatively prosperous place uh, that many people think they might like to be part of.
2: Yeah, I think the um, site becoming more socially progressive and more liberal in the last few years has been a driving factor of that. Because when you look at the historical image of this whole island, it's almost seen as this slightly backwards, highly religious society that's never really moved on. Like my my dad used to always say we were 20 years behind the rest of the world, but I don't, I don't really know if that's the
1: case anymore, you know? No, I, th- I think it's really quite striking is some of the more recent evidence around life expectancy and standards of living and income north and south. That's that's simply um, people, you know, that argument about people simply being better off. I would also, you know, one of the things that people are right about at the moment, we, we do need more statistical, reliable information and data in this conversation at the moment, and it's getting both bits of the island to talk to each other and share some of that information as well, so that when we do come to vote in the North, people are voting on the basis of accurate, reliable statistical information as to what uh, it will mean. Uh, The corollary of that we haven't really covered in this conversation is that that also puts an onus, you know, on unionism, because sometimes there's there seems to be a suggestion that unionism is, is a participant in this conversation that just sits in the corner with its hands folded, crossed or whatever, and and not really engaging. Uh, but I suppose question I have would be, you know, unionism will have to move beyond the status quo argument. You know, will unionism as part of the conversation and the referendum in, in the north? Be proposing change as well, for example? Will, will there be proposals emerging about the, the way in which the UK is currently constituted? You know, there are discussions about constitutional reform in the UK as well. So, really, I think this, there's often a lot of focus on those people who are advocating change. But maybe we need to also think about those people who are arguing for maintaining the union with Britain. What are the proposals there? Is it just going to be a status quo or are there proposals for change on on that side of the argument as well? I actually think that people sort of slightly skeptical about this, I think we'll all be better off for having this conversation. We'll be more informed. We'll have more reliable information about what's happening on this island and across these islands. And I think we have to stop constructing this argument as a fear-ridden, anxiety-filled conversation. I think we'll be better off for having the discussion,
0: yeah. Do you think that the that the peace generation has kind of opened up the way for like kind of more rational discussion on this issue? Maybe
1: I think there's a there's there's an back to an earlier point about um, you know looking around these islands and thinking about what or where best represents where you see your potential future. It's not something I can speak to, having just turned, you know, recently turned 50, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of at that generation, perhaps that falls way outside of that. But when you look at the sort of things that younger generation values in terms of the, of the future, I just wonder, you know, looking at what's happening uh, on this island and the south of this island, looking at where, let's say, Boris, the Brexiteer vision of the future, I just wonder what will be the more appealing vision. I also think people are increasingly uncomfortable with some of the labeling and categorizations that have traditionally infused the debate here. And that's striking, I think, and speaking to maybe more issue-based uh, arguments within younger generations as well. That's not to say the old arguments have fallen away, but it's part of the earlier point. And I may be wrong, but you know Brexit has really fundamentally changed the dynamics of this discussion. Like even in some of the things I've been saying the last few, you know, some of the old arguments around this are falling away. You know, it, it's it's changing into a different sort of argument, and it's less about the old traditional arguments about about Irish unity, and it's a new sort of a conversation. And it's that sort of younger activist generation on this island that has really been the dynamic that has led change north and south, that is giving voice to a new way of thinking about what were, you know, maybe old and tired arguments. From an old and tired academic, of course, yeah. <laughs> Not to make you feel old, Colin, but we are
2: <laughs> half your age. So but I think you have nailed what yeah. we are sort of thinking. So. Yeah. <laughs> and I think uh, just a final question, unless Matt really wants to say one or two more. Um, how do you see politics changing up here in a, in a post-Gi context? So I think what we're really trying to ask here is, will certain parties still be about? Will new parties emerge? Or would the likes of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gale maybe
1: push up to that Northern voter? Well, maybe just just a very personal reflection on, on some of that. I'm involved in this discussion because I want things to be better for everyone on the island. I've spent my entire life working for equality, human rights and social justice. I passionately believe in creating a better life for everyone on this island. I think what we're talking about in this discussion, is part of achieving that. I think it's a remarkably, can you imagine being part of a generation that achieves this sort of transformative change on this island over the course of the next decade? What, what an unbelievable project to be part of, what an exciting project to be involved in. I am, um, like, I give an example for myself. P- people routinely call me a nationalist. Right. So I'm a professor of human rights law at Queen's who spent my life working for human rights. Yeah, I spent much of my life working for the rights of refugees and asylum seekers and migrants. I find the terminology of nationalist deeply problematic. You know, I'm not a narrow nationalist. I'm a human rights activist interested in the human rights of everyone in this island who happens to also have a view about the constitutional question, but I find myself persistently labeled <laughs> with this label that I find deeply troubling and uncomfortable, I want to shake off. So, you know, for me, what what will unionism and nationalism mean anymore if the border on this island goes? And to me, it seems this is an opportunity to end the sort of thing that has really dominated my life that has dominated politics north and south on the island you know with all the major parties defined by this one issue you know that we can get to a proper conversation north and south about some of the basic socio economic environmental and other issues that people care so passionately about so i ultimately feel this is a doorway this is a way of opening up a new form of politics on the island, because like many people listen to this, I'm fed up with some of the the old labels, the old categorizations. I'm fed up being described in simplistic terms that don't capture the complexity of my life and work. And I just think uh, there's an opportunity to do this. I don't want to go where Boris and the Brexiteers want to go. Yeah, so I'll be quite upfront about that. I think they're involved in a project that makes me anxious, worried, and scared for people in this society who deserve a lot better. So I think it will be, I hope, a reconfigured uh, discussion. Like when I say transformative change, I mean that. Like I, I don't want to tweak north and south. Like things need to be genuinely different and better for everyone on this island in the future.
2: Oh, what, a, what a great answer, and really thoughtful one. Uh, Matt, do you have any final questions you would like to ask, Colin? Um, no, I think uh, I'm, I'm good, yeah. Okay, everybody. Uh, thank you all for listening, Colin. Thank you for taking time out of your, your busy day to come talk to us. I, I find that really fascinating, really did, and really really enjoyed it. So, everybody that's it for this week. Okay. Um, later on in the week, we'll be having on John Hannah from Unite UK to just talk about the constitutional aspects of Northern Ireland as part of the UK and how that can change, uh, just to hopefully give a balanced discussion so everybody knows where we're coming from and Having a better informed argument, as Colin said. Hi guys, this is James here, just doing a quick way at it. We forgot to ask Colin his uh, social media details where I can find him. There's two accounts on Twitter, which you just really need to follow. It's uh, Colin Harvey on Twitter, and it's uh, Arden's Future also on Twitter. Get a book and follow. Really interesting discussion happening on both. We give you a bit of a better insight into the thoughts of uh, being out there. There you go, thanks for listening.